one of the things I observed within the public sector was was that actually there is a value placed on learning and education and, and a more formalized education. I think in the private sector, that idea of sort of formalized self-reflection is something that isn't always there. You tend to just do it. And then if it works, you, you kind of learn from it. Clearly, you do reflect. But I think it's less formalized. And I became quite fascinated. And as I, you know, as you alluded to, I sort of described it as my midlife crisis. Instead of getting a, a leather jacket and a Porsche, I decided I'd go and get some degrees. Hi there, I'm James Ashton. In this episode, we explore leadership in the arts, bouncing back from lockdown, and what constitutes cultural success beyond a sellout at the box office. Leading is supported by Lockton, the world's largest privately owned independent insurance broker. Lockton's independence means its 8,000 associates worldwide are free to focus solely on their clients' risk and insurance needs. To hear more from Lockton experts, please visit lockteninternational.com gb insight. So to this episode. Darren Henley is Chief Executive of Arts Council England, the public body that distributes £700 million every year to support galleries, theatres, museums, dance studios, music venues and libraries. His background is in radio, having risen from weekend newsreader to managing director during 22 years at Classic FM. We talk about the challenge of restarting the arts post-pandemic and their importance on the world stage channeling more money into the regions without damaging London's cultural gems such as the Royal Opera House and the South Bank Centre. Lessons learnt from swapping the private for the public sector in 2015 and a midlife crisis that sent him back to school. It's a great episode and Darren clearly has great passion for his subject. I kicked off by asking how bad things were, whether irreparable damage had been done to the English art scene even after £160 million of emergency funding. Well, obviously, it's been a hugely challenging period over the last uh, year or so uh, with many of the organisations, arts organisations, museums, libraries that we work with in towns and cities up and down the country facing real challenges uh, with a lot of their income streams just disappearing overnight. You know, uh, no ticket sales, uh, no revenue from from bars or restaurants or, or other activities. Uh, so they've had a huge challenge to deal with that. Uh, and we've worked at the Arts Council, along with colleagues at DCMS, to, to do everything we can to help protect the sector. The sector is is a really important part of the UK economy, does an amazing job in places, it does an amazing job for peoples and uh, in terms of, of communities, uh, and it's it's really really important that we, we we've done everything we can to protect this, and we've worked at real speed uh, to do that because the the peril has been there on a very short term basis. You know, I'm an optimist and looking forward. Uh, we are right at the, uh, the stage now where opening up is, is starting to happen, and clearly there will be challenges around doing that in a socially distanced way and with a pandemic that none of us really quite knows how it's going to pan out and what what difficulties may come up in the in, in the in the short to medium term but we're really determined to do everything we can to help support those artists and the people that are, are making things happen in places up and down the country that actually makes people's lives better and that's a really really important thing for me and in terms of what's there and what's saved and, and what's gone is it about helping bring things back to life or is it new things that arts council will help to to give birth to i think in, in the first stage it was about protecting the important cultural infrastructure that we have 
in this country and actually widening that out and, and, and making sure that there are all sorts of organizations who we haven't actually had a funding relationship with previously, who we, we have worked with over the last year, uh, and also some of those infrastructure organizations as well who work in the background. So they may not be sort of household names, but without them, some of the companies that, that, that work in design and lighting and distribution and some of those specialist organizations who work who are, uh, set design as, as well, they're in the background and they're really important for our infrastructure. I, I think it's always really important to say that before the pandemic, this was one of our fastest growing sectors. It's something that on the international stage, as we are working to redefine what the country is on the international stage right now, it's part of how we're seen around the world. So it's really, really valuable. But also, there's something very, very powerful about the importance of creativity itself and creative people for our young people, for society as a whole. I think it's something that these organizations do. Uh, they do it day in, day out. They work with very talented, very creative people. Uh, and our job is to be enablers, to be facilitators, to make sure that happens and to make sure it's there in the future go, as we go forward into that world, uh, hopefully post-pandemic. And do, do you see then what time frame it takes to, to get back to normal or is it simply about moving forward, Darren? Because you, you rightly say, you know, post-Brexit, how the UK projects itself onto, onto the world stage is something that, that is uh, very, very closely linked to our arts and culture output. So this is a sector, um, you know, of which you're leading, if you like, with, with your financial clout that cannot be allowed to, uh, to suffer for long. Well, it's interesting. As a sector, there's a lot of time lag, if you like, in terms of developing product in one way or another, whether that be a performance show or something happens in an art gallery. You know, we can't just pull up the shutters, turn on the cash registers and start all over again. It's not, you know, uh, it's not that similar to, say, a retail environment where you might see uh, stock is there. You can actually open the doors and, and start selling on day one. So there is that process of building up all the way through. And I think, you know, it's fair to say that with restrictions on capacity, that also is a challenge, because uh, these organisations need to be able to sell all their tickets to be able to be economically viable. So again, that's been something that's been very much recognised by government. And, and something we've been working on is, is how we hopefully get to a stage where we can get towards more normal capacity soon as well. You don't talk about art subsidy. I think when you're talking about the £700 million or so that you distribute every year, some of it coming from taxpayers, some of it coming from National Lottery, you're, you're talking about investment. Uh, I'm interested in how you measure impact of that investment. I guess you can very easily measure the number of people coming through the turnstiles. You can, you can measure the creation of jobs and so on. But things like happiness and community, I mean, that, that's when it gets a lot harder, isn't it? So I absolutely believe that we are investors of taxpayers and national lottery players' money, and we're investing it in the lives of the end consumer, so the people who buy the tickets or or become participants in cultural activity. And yes, I, I think that um, there's a sort of maybe half a dozen different areas where you can look at measuring this. And there is an economic benefit, and there is an economic output, and that's really important to acknowledge. Our sector drives jobs. It creates real employment in places. And, and, and we uh, have a series of up and down the country, really strong business organisations who are cultural organisations, but they're businesses as well. And they're really very, very well run. But there's other things as well. I think um, you can measure it in the lives of young people, for example. And uh, I'm very conscious. I spend about 
pre-pandemic, I spend about 50% of my time traveling up and down the country. So I spend a lot of time standing on train stations in different parts of the country. And I'm, I'm, I sort of reflect that um, you often see independent schools advertising on those train platforms. And I'm always struck by the five things that basically they talk about there. They'll talk about academic results, but they'll then start to talk very quickly about sport, but then about art, uh, about music and uh, about drama. And that's often the things that they're actually advertising themselves to people who will spend quite considerable amounts of money over maybe a 10-year period in their young person's lives. And that's what that market is buying. So I'm very curious about how that's something that's seen as very valuable. So for me, it's really important that every young person should have those opportunities. I, I'm struck by uh, the school that um, Prince George and Princess Charlotte go to. They teach ballet to everybody from the moment they come in. I think there's something very special that cultural subjects bring to young people. And I'm very curious about what we can do to make the people who lead this country the possibility for every young person from every background to be one of those people. And so I think they have to have that shared cultural conversation. I think that's very, very important. Other things that um, are important for us in terms of investment, I think it's very, very powerful for a sense of community and a sense of place. Uh, and cultural organisations can enable really deep and interesting conversations to happen, to, to open people's eyes up to possibilities that are beyond their sphere of their normal experience. And also for building that reputation for a place. And that can be a reputation locally, but it can also be a, a reputation nationally and internationally. And I'm really struck. The thing for me that's a big overarching thing and something that's become more and more interesting to me personally is this idea of happiness in people's lives. And I think there is no greater reason for investing taxpayers and national lottery players' money into anything actually that we do, uh, whether it be the Arts Council or anything, you know, whether it be transport policy or health policy or education policy, than driving upwards people's happiness. And there are measures uh, around the world. We've seen a lot of things around well-being now uh, and talking about well-being policies. And I'm fascinated about what more we can do around this. And uh, that's an area that's become more and more interesting to me as I've worked for longer at the Arts Council. And we all need a bit of happiness at the moment, certainly. I'm interested in how you've run it, Darren, since you took over Arts Council England in 2015, because I imagine so many of the conversations people have with you is, you know, how does the money get distributed? How do I get a grant? How does this happen? I would imagine that, you, you know, you have hundreds of people working in your organisation based all around England. They, I imagine, are the people who will make those pretty granular funding decisions. And you sit on top of them and give them uh, a bit of guidance as, as how to do that. So what, what's your priority? Well, I'm very privileged because I work with an amazing team of, team of people uh, in our nine offices all across the country. And I've never worked anywhere where there's a greater sense of shared purpose and a real desire to do the right thing. You know, we have a finite amount of money. There are way more people out there that we could fund uh, and we could invest in and we have to make difficult decisions. But um, there's a real sense of caring about making those decisions with as much uh, wisdom as possible. And, you know, there are no greater group of people. And we've seen it over the last 12, 13 months where, you know, the desire to do everything we possibly can to protect our sector, whether it be arts organisations or museums or libraries, to, to enable them to be in a position to grow back quickly and effectively when they can be. So for me, my, my priority is, and I'm very privileged because I get to meet uh, amazing people. And, uh, you know, I spent the first five years of doing this job up until the first lockdown, as I say, travelling around the country. So I probably have seen 
more art and culture in more places than anybody else. I, I, I would defy anybody else to have uh, spent as many nights as I have in Premier Inns up and down the land over the last uh, five, six years. Uh, and that's because I really want to see what happens in different places. And I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in it not being something that somebody who sits behind a desk in London decides. It's got to be very granular. It's got to be about having relationships on the ground. It's got to be about understanding all of the aspects of arts and culture on the ground in different places. And, and there's no hierarchy. It's as valuable in a small village or town as it is in the big city. You've got, you've got to be able to balance that. And I, I want to make sure that we enable people to uh, experience the very best of national and international uh, artistic and cultural activities in their places, but also that they get to be able to work to produce and make great art in those places as well. And I, I should say, so that, so there are different ways that organisations, whether they're music venues, theatres, um, galleries, libraries, get financial support from you. There's a national portfolio of 800 organisations, which you might say are, are the spine of England's cultural life. The Royal Opera House, the Royal Shakespeare Company, lots of regional organisations there. And then also there's a pot of lottery money, which is about a third of, of what you're distributing. Darren, you talked about balance. I'm really interested in that. When you came in, you took a little bit of money out of, well, not a bit, £170 million. You, you wanted to spend more money in the regions. And of course, levelling up is very much the, um, the phrase of the moment in government. Do you think, as you also have to look after those great London cultural gems, that we are in danger of rebalancing away too much from London? It's our only world city. It possibly only ever will be. And it's a great beacon for the world. It's clearly really, really important that we have uh, a capital city that uh, punches its weight on the world stage. And, and I think that, you know, that is absolutely central. And there are some amazing organisations, large and small, right across London. So in the centre of town, but also on the edges as well. We maybe don't talk about as much as, uh, as, as maybe we should. But also, it's really, really important that it's not the only game in town and that we have across the country a series of other major conurbations. So, uh, you know, Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, Newcastle, Bristol, Southampton, all of these are, are, are really interesting places where there's exciting work happening and, and where we're seeing a growth in, in our investment and in, and, in, and in the artistic output of those places. And we really want to foster that. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it's important also in some of those quieter places that may have not been as culturally significant that we start to think about more that we can do there. So some of our, uh, our towns and villages across the country, some of those, uh, particularly some of those towns in, in maybe the Midlands and the north of England that may not have had the investment in the past. Uh, I'm very interested in those post-industrial places and what we can do. I've really seen uh, in the last few years the power of investment in arts and culture in changing the narratives of those places. Hull is a, is a, is a great example. I, I mean, I went to university in Hull, so I'm very fond of it as a, as a city. I knew you mentioned actually, Hull, Darren. the narrative. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm quite militant about Hull. It's, a, it's one of those places that once you go to it, and I was born and brought up in the southeast of England, but once you go there, uh, it gets in your blood. And uh, it's, it's really important, actually. Hull has gone on a journey, and it's changed the way that uh, the people who live there talk about the place and feel about their place. And it's also changed the narrative externally as well. And I'm confident that, you know, Coventry has had a, a real challenge with City of Culture coming in 2021 with all the problems uh, of the pandemic. But actually, in the next few months, we'll see Coventry coming to the fore there. And again, another great post-industrial city that is a brilliant story that through culture uh, we'll see coming to the fore. Again, Liverpool with 2008 and European City of Culture, 
massive change for the, for, for that city, and they've they've continued to reap the benefits on that. I suppose the other way of asking the balance question, I don't want to contradict myself, is some people will still look at your portfolio and say, well, how come the Royal Opera House is getting, I think, circa £24 million? How many community arts projects can that support in these post-industrial mining towns that, that you talk about? And of course, the Opera House is the one that can drum up the commercial support from the sponsors uh, and so on, which I know is something that you look for in um, in the organisations that you support. It's really important that we diversify the income streams for all of the organisations and and different organisations at different times will have different challenges. I, I know that some of our larger organisations, they have very large amounts of money attached to them, but at the same time, they are very big employers. You know, I think the Royal Opera House employs something like 900 people in the centre of, of London. So, uh, and also has set design and building happens in Essex, in North Wales is where they store their sets. So actually, it's a bigger national organisation sometimes uh, than people realise. And it does play a big part on the international stage as well. But you're right. I, I think that we always, in any sort of public policy, can be in danger of reducing things to binary choices. And I think it's quite important that we, it's not either or. I'm a big believer in and, and rather than either or. So I don't see any problem with having a portfolio of work that we do that spans large and small, different sorts of places. And at different times as well, we're able to strategically over-invest in different things in different places. And that's an important thing to be able to do too. Over-investment, goodness me, I didn't think this was the the time for over-investment, but um you know, if if you if you can, that's that's a great thing to be able to do. Well, it's about saying what when I say that, I, I think we're always looking for investable propositions, and often they're place based. And I think place based as a strategy is something that's becoming more and more important. So that's about saying actually, is there local leadership on the ground? Is there willing partners? So quite often, uh, local authorities, very important co-investors in arts and culture. Universities, very, very important co-investors as well. So you might find there's a coalescing that comes together where actually you think, this is the time for that place. A couple more specifics, because I do want to come on to your um, very, very interesting CV. And you've, you've been uh, seemingly educating yourself ever since you left university, Darren. So I've got to come on to that. But libraries, which is a very, it's a topic very close to my heart, We've seen these 20% of closures across the UK in the last decade. Arts Council has a development role in libraries. Is this the moment as we talk about rebuilding post-pandemic for you to take a stand and say, we really shouldn't be closing any more libraries? Well, I think it's a great opportunity for libraries because they are cultural spaces, very, very well situated usually in, in, in high streets up and down the country, staffed by amazing people good digital tech there as well, and very egalitarian. And so I think uh, you're right. In a post-pandemic world, there's a great opportunity for libraries to, to be there. And we're seeing that up and down the country. You know, uh, there are some great library services. Uh, I was just looking just last week, Manchester has got a, a brilliant festival of libraries that they've done, so that, where they're doing, and, and some, some really interesting work there where they've got a, a hub and spoke model, where they've got an amazing library right in the city centre, but but small local libraries in communities around Greater Manchester as well, and doing things on a big scale, but also doing things in a very micro local scale uh, as well. So I think libraries are a massive asset. I think if we didn't have them, governments will be sitting there thinking, how do we invent them? I think because we've got them, we've got to cherish them, love them, and continue to reinvent them. But the I'm very confident for libraries. I think that there's a really exciting opportunity for them in, in, in the years ahead. Okay, thanks. And just one other point that feels very topical at the moment, I'll come on to you. Culture wars. 
um, which a lot of people are talking about. It seems potentially quite a pernicious time to, to be in the arts. Are you worried about freedom of expression? So it's really important that artists are able to express themselves. And one of the things about being an arm's length body is we are at arm's length from from, from government. Uh, and it's really, really very important that artists can say what they believe and can can create art that challenges uh, and is, is new and is innovative and is dangerous uh, and is risky. And that's really, really important. At the same time, it's really important that as, as, a, as a public funder, we're investing in a whole range of different arts and cultural activities so that um, actually everybody feels there's something that we do that is for them. And, and that's very important too. This episode of Leading is supported by Lockton. We'll get back to the conversation shortly, but first here's Chris Brown, Lockton's managing partner, on taking a lead on climate change. It's important for all leaders, I think, to look at the impact of climate change and look at their own organisations and how they're managing that and uh, taking it forward. One of the things I do think, though, is that you know we're in the business of risk and it's critical that leaders make sure that whatever commitments they're giving here, they can fulfil because it's such an important, such a high-profile area, both internally within their own organisations and clearly externally with their clients. Tell me about your background. So 22 years at, at Classic FM, and I'm interested at the, the point at which you first felt you were in charge because you were making tea going back to, to your Kent days, age 16 at uh, Invicta Radio, which I think is a, it, it seems to be the classic, a wonderful way to start in radio. So many great presenters and managers have been the tea boy. And then with Classic FM, I mean, it's it's meteoric, if you like. Weekend newsreader when the station started in 92, and then you were managing director by the end. What point did you think you're in charge of something? It's a really interesting question. I suppose um, the thing with broadcasting is that um, you're in charge of something pretty early on, because quite early on, you earn the trust to be able to go on air and do I don't know, a traffic and travel bulletin, which I was assembling, which is what I was doing when I my first sort of broadcasting on air role. So you're given that responsibility quite quickly. There's no one there sitting there telling you once you've learned how to do it, you you know, you assemble it. And, and in those days, certainly in commercial radio, we weren't overburdened with teams of people. So um, quite quickly, you were given more and more responsibility and you kind of earn it. And if things go wrong, you, you may unearn it. But at the same time, you know, you've got opportunities. And and I think for me, it was I just loved doing it. So whenever anybody gave me any opportunity to do absolutely anything, I just say, yes, I'll do it. And and, and in fact, I, I got given a piece of advice, which was, you know, particularly when you're in your 20s, is just say yes to as much as you possibly can. Have a go, see what it's like. It's not that dangerous. If you don't like it and you're not very good at it, that's fine. I personally didn't think I was a great broadcaster. And maybe that's something that I, 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 you know, if I was to give people advice now, I'd say, know what you're not good at and be honest with yourself. And I, I don't think I was ever going to be, uh, you know, presenting Radio 2 Breakfast Show or, or, or the Today programme. And so I kind of recognised that, but I was probably better at being a producer and, and maybe better at being a manager. And I kind of thought, well, that's the direction I'll go in. And, and that's what gave me pleasure. Yeah, very important to have. Very important to have that self awareness. I suppose that day you dressed up as the pot noodle, you probably thought I'm not a great pot noodle model either. Well, I did write off a company car dressed up as a uh, pot noodle. So your research is very good. Uh, I was chicken and mushroom flavour, in case you're wondering. 
I had it jotted down, but I wasn't going to go into that level of detail, Darren. I do, I do appreciate it, though. So, look, no no regrets, because sometimes when I've interviewed people, particularly in in, um, in education, when they've been the academic and then they become the the administrator, and you've gone from the on-air to off-air, if you like, so it seems like no regrets there. I suppose what will be interesting to talk about is during that rise at Classic FM, it's all difficult to get respect, do you think, as you, as you rose up? Because there were always going to be people in the building who said, who on earth has let the weekend newsreader take control of this and that and the other? Yeah, I suppose there's always a challenge for anybody who, uh, in any organisation, who is coming up from from within. So you've you've got that, those two models really, haven't you? Which is, you know, you either promote from within or you bring in the star from outside, sort of thing. And uh, I, I was there for a very long time, so I was very lucky that I knew what I wanted to be when I was at school. I knew I wanted to work in radio; it was my passion. I was very lucky that I was able to to get a job in. in in a really interesting radio station when I first joined Classic FM as uh, a freelance afternoon newsreader I was still at university I was traveling down from from Hull uh, and, and reading the news on a Sunday afternoon sleeping on the then chief executive sofa in his office he never actually knew and then I'd get up at five o'clock on, on, on the Monday morning and get back on the first train back to Hull and be a normal student and I would do that more in, in, in my university holidays and that meant that I was very lucky really lucky that when I graduated, I, I walked straight into a job. But even then, I walked into a job where I was the overnight newsreader. I was reading the news from 11pm till 6am and working till 9am, four nights on, four nights off. So it's pretty antisocial. I worked on my own sitting in, in the office overnight, but I loved it and, uh, and I really enjoyed it. And and then uh, when the opportunity came, I, I, I then decided that maybe production was, was more my thing. So I stopped being a newsreader uh, and moved to being a, a producer, which meant I basically moved sort of one, one desk closer to the window and got to work in the daytimes. But but I did a lot of evenings and weekends and overnights uh, along the way. And I think, uh, you know, for me, always, I've been very lucky in having a job that I really love doing. Uh, so it's never been a chore. So it, it's never been about clocking in, clocking out for me. It's just about doing interesting things and having fun. And who mentored you during those years? Who was the person that said during your 20s, say yes to everything? That was actually uh, uh, another producer, actually, who's since become an opera singer uh, uh, sort of uh, along the way. But I, I was really lucky to work with and for some very entrepreneurial people. Commercial radio at that time was still a very small industry in a way. Classic FM, there was there was a real sense that we were doing something different. And the late Michael Buck, who was the programme director that launched Classic, was a remarkable man and uh, he did the same he, he launched capital radio decades before and there was a sense of being an outsider and as an organization we were challenging the existence of, of all the orthodoxy of how you would be able to broadcast classical music in the uk was essentially there's only one way of doing it it's like radio 3 now i actually think radio 3 do an incredibly good job and the bbc is a great custodian of classical music and the arts more generally but there was a different way of doing it and actually we could take a lot of the learning from commercial pop music radio and apply it to classical music. And that's what we did. And we we were, every time we did something, it's e easy to forget now. We were the, you know, doing a request program, not unusual 
in pop music radio, but very unusual in classical music radio, doing mood-based sequencing. So smooth classics at seven uh, in the evenings, which still still going strong today on Classic FM. Very, very different uh, as a way of doing it, but something that now where we see uh, in podcasts and with Spotify, you know, mood-based listening is something that's, that's very much there. So there was a real sense of everything that we were doing, we were doing for the first time. And we were a commercial radio station and we didn't have the same pressures on us or to 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 be a public service broadcaster in one way because we weren't funded by the license fee but i i believe very strongly that actually the way we would develop a a relationship with our listeners and a a place in 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 the uk psyche if you like was to do a lot of work around music education to do a lot of work with the orchestral sector to actually be uh, people who excuse the pun bang the drum for classical music world we needed to be adding something in. We couldn't just be seen as people who were parasitic, who were taking something out. We all the time, in our own way, had to to do something to add something into the cultural life of the country. So I hope we did some of that. And, uh, you know, it it, it remains a a really amazing brand. And I'm, I'm very privileged to have been able to work there. And it's amazing looking back today at the criticism that it was still getting, even when its audience had long since eclipsed Radio 3. I mean, as you say, it's that unique thing. It was sort of high culture for the masses and very, very profitable. Um, so I suppose there's a model there for for many of the portfolio organisations that you're supporting. Is snobbishness just just part of the arts in, in England, Darren? Is it just unavoidable or should we be better about it now? I suspect there's snobbishness in absolutely everything that's created. I suspect if you delved into the video games world, there will be a, a snobbishness. I suspect, uh, you know, certainly if you look at Premiership football versus non-league football, there's a snobbishness. So I think there's all that's always going to be present. Uh, I, and for me, it was a, a really interesting way of, uh, of democratising classical music. And it was actually saying to people, uh, I mean, what would often happen was that people would kind of have come across classical music in one form or another uh, and would think it would, they were the only people like them who were on this voyage of discovery. And they were a little bit nervous about admitting it to people for two reasons. One, because they thought, you know, they might be a bit odd because they like classical music. Or two, a particularly British thing I think this is, slightly scared that the person they were talking to would know about it and would then start to try to engage them on the subject and their ignorance wouldn't be there. So one of the things we did a lot of work on was uh, initially, you know, we created a magazine and then we did a lot of book publishing around guides to classical music and actually now, you know, creating digital content in the same way. Uh, They've been very strong at doing that. Always about saying, you've discovered this amazing classical music thing. How can we help deepen your experience, build your relationship with it? Uh, Because actually, it's just amazing. And there's so much of it. And it's a real voyage of discovery. And I think, you know, for me personally, I wasn't a a musician. I've always been in my career, probably a bit of an outsider in what I did. I wasn't in the classical music world. Uh, I did some work with the government on, on music education and cultural education. I'm not an educationist. And when I came to the Arts Council, I'd not been somebody who'd worked in the public sector before or worked for a publicly funded organization. So I've always had that slight outsider's perspective. And so for me, that was a big journey that I was able to go on with the listeners when I was at Classic FM. Well, tell me about that switch, because you were in the private sector for all those years. And as you say, you switched to public sector leadership when you took over at the Arts Council in 2015. What did you bring with you? And what did you find that you needed to leave behind? I think, uh, I think the the biggest thing that any leader or anybody really in the world of work can do is to bring themselves. And I, I mean that in a not in a trite way. I think you've just got to engage with everything, uh, understand. So do lots of learning, do lots of listening, 
build relationships with people. Uh, and that's always been what I've tried to do is I'm really interested in people uh, and people make organizations, whatever that organization is, whether it's big or small, public sector or private sector. In the end, you're, uh, you know, you can reduce it down to being a headed, uh, you know, a logo on a headed notepaper uh, without people in an organization. So people will always make organizations great they'll make them function and people you know for organizations that are challenged will equally be a big problem in organizations too so i suppose i i brought with me uh, a sense of uh, of inquiry and and wanting to understand i i'm not a uh, uh, my my personal style is I, i'm not particularly interested in generating headlines and getting quotes in newspapers and things like that i'm much more interested in being measured on on what we do uh, and on on those outputs, and and I think that's the most important thing. It's about actually the difference that your organisation makes uh, in people's lives, uh, for your customers, uh, uh, or or your stakeholders, however you want to describe them. That's the powerful thing. That's what makes the difference. Because you had, as you you've referred to, you 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 dabbled in the public sector, if you like, or people had had encouraged you to dabble with these reviews and task forces that you've been involved in, looking at the funding of music education and then and then cultural education. Now, a cynic would say, was this you positioning yourself for for something in public life? I think you've said you weren't looking when maybe it was Ed Vasey or, or someone put in the phone call. Yeah, it was really interesting. So I started sort of accidentally bumbled into this world, if you like, actually during the Labour government. And uh, Andrew Adonis was the education minister at the time, junior education minister. And they wanted to do something called the Music Manifesto, which was to develop the case for further investment in music education. And I've always been completely non-party political, and, and, and that's been a, a real benefit. I've, I've, I've worked closely with all three of the, the major parties in England. In fact, after I did the English Education Review, I sat on a panel for the SNP in Scotland as well. So, so I, I, you know, the four main parties in this country I, I've, I've worked closely with. And I've said the same thing to them. And I think that's the interesting thing. So it's not about, you know, in those days, I wasn't trying to shape any particular political narrative. They were asking me to talk about music education and its value and what we could do to, to make it better and to keep growing it. And then the same for culture education. So I've always been able to uh, just, say what I thought in, in in those contexts. And so I then, uh, obviously, the party of power changed and the, the coalition government came in and Ed Vasey and Michael Gove asked me to do a review of music education. And I was working at that time quite closely, you know, in government as well with Don Foster, uh, Jane Bonham Carter, Baroness Bonham Carter, who were leading for the Liberal Democrats. So it, it was a very seamless thing. I, I, I was able to, 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 to work with all three of those parties. And it was all about actually saying, Music education is really valuable in young people's lives. How can we invest in it in the best possible way? How can we structure it in the best possible way to make sure that the outcomes for those young people uh, are the best they could possibly be? And uh, that review was done. Uh, at that time, I didn't expect to end up running the organisation that would be delivering that. So the Arts Council delivers the music education hubs that I recommended, and that was not an outcome I was expecting. But depending on your view, I either did well or badly with that because the government <laughs> asked me to do a second review, uh, and that was on a more broader cultural education and, again, working with the DfE and with DCMS. So so I got to learn a lot about how government worked. It was a uh, something that was quite alien to me, how, how civil servants work, how ministers work, how announcements are made publicly, how public investment uh, is made. And so I spent 
more and more to my time. I was very lucky. Global, who owned Classic FM, were, were were very happy for me to do that. They felt it was an important uh, thing for Classic FM to do and for them uh, to, to to sponsor, if you like. So I was very much encouraged to do this. And the job came up at the Arts Council, and it was very, very different. But I thought to myself, you know, this is something that I have been doing for a lot of my time now. And, you know, I've been at Classic FM for a long time. I was very happy working for Global. My, my departure was was very happy. Uh, and I, I, I still sit as a, a governor on, on, on the school that we, we, we started there, the Global Academy. So, you know, I've still got a good relationship with them and I wish them well. And, they, and, and Classic FM continues to prosper and thrive. But it was time for me to do something different. And, and the Arts Council came beckoning and, and Sir Peter Bazalgette was the chair at the time. And he sat on the panel that, that gave me the job. Very persuasive man. Very. Does all this extracurricular stuff that you did, did it help the day job? Did it? Did you find, did it feed in that extra perspective you got? Did it make you a better boss? I think it's always really good, particularly if you've been in a single organisation for a long time. Now, having said that, commercial radio went through a lot of ownership, structural ownership changes over a period of time. So, so you know, there was a lot of buying and selling. And I think one of the great things for, for commercial radio now is that in this country, it's owned by essentially private companies. And that's a much better model for commercial radio because Ashley Tabor, who leads and owns Global, has been able to take a long-term investment view in commercial radio. So much more akin to how the BBC would operate rather than something that was at a period of time maybe in the 90s, was very short-termist because, you know, it was privately owned and if there was an advertising recession or anything like that, it meant that some of those investments had to be curtailed. And I think having private ownership with a long-term family firm, uh, we see that with, with, with Global and actually also with the number two player with Bauer as well, I think that's been really good for commercial radio. So, it, you know, as a sector, that's, that, that's been something that's, uh, that, that's powered forward, actually. And, and we've seen some really strong innovations there over the last few years. And tell me about some of the things that you've... So there were two particular strands I was interested in through that, the second half of your time at Classic and then propelled you into Arts Council. There's, all, there's the reviews and the task forces we've discussed. I'm also interested in this, um, your own education efforts because i think you call this your midlife crisis of learning or something probably from the same article i got the the, the pot noodle line but you've now got a, a postgrad in applied positive psychology a master's degree in management and the history of art and a professional doctorate exploring the role of the outsider as an agent for change and i think you're a professional coach so it seems like a huge amount to sort of graft onto everything that you're learning in in the day job why did you do all that it's really interesting because I I went to university. I got my degree in politics from Hull, third class. Um, uh, quite you know, uh, I spent a lot of time reading the news on radio stations, and but I had a great time there. I met my closest friends remain today still there, and it was a great thing for someone who'd lived in the southeast of England to go and live in a city like Hull and to to, to see uh, a different perspective on the world. But but also brilliant people, and still people like Lord Norton, who's sort of leading politics professor there. He was the reason I chose Hull because he seemed to write all the A level textbooks. So um, I, I went there. Uh, and uh, you know he's still going strong today, uh, and obviously in the House of Lords as well. I think that one of the things I observed within the public sector was was that actually there is a value placed on learning and education, and, and a more formalised education. I think in the private sector, that idea of sort of formalised self reflection is something that isn't always there. You tend to just do it, and then if it works, you, you kind of learn from it. Clearly, you do reflect, but I think it's less formalised. And I became quite fascinated, and as I you know as you alluded to I sort of described it as my midlife crisis instead of getting a, a leather jacket and a Porsche I decided I'd go and get some degrees uh, instead and and I found that my love of learning 
is a, an interesting hobby for me. And I found it very relevant to my working life. And I've learned loads. The Arts Council, we, we have become a coaching organisation. I think coaching is an incredibly important way of being. Uh, and in my role, I see my primary role in terms of interacting with our team uh, as being a coach. I think the positive psychology is absolutely fascinating. It's one of the most exciting things uh, I've discovered and that, 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 that the science of what makes life worth living. And uh, I talked about this a little bit earlier on, that idea of happiness in people's lives and how people lead happier lives. And it sounds a little bit... Um, trite in some ways but actually some very simple things you can do that happy people tend to do and people who are successful tend to do and they're not they don't cost money but there are behaviors that you can you can adopt uh, and, and adapt as well and actually use in your own life uh, and that's really important i think things like mindfulness as well are coming more and more to the fore and all of these things uh, for leaders i think are actually quite important because looking after the well-being of your team if your team is happy if your team is fulfilled if they can see a journey of progression for them personally they feel that they're learning uh, these are all things that mean that they're probably going to be better and more effective at doing your your core business whatever that is and that's something uh, that i think it's uh, that somebody in my sort of role should be should be fostering yeah because you say you say you've you've made the arts council a coaching organization darren i guess my question would always be after I've asked you who mentored you, it's, it's about how you pass on your lessons to the next generation. But because you're a professional coach, it suggests to me that you're charging them for it. No, I don't do any, any, I don't have anything extracurricular. I did all the training and the training's really relevant to my day to day job, but uh, it's not something I'm doing on the side. I see. I'm interested in the other point. I've written down governance here, which is always a, a terrible word to talk about. But one thing with you, you're very thoughtful about how you run your organization. And I guess you, in a way, you have to not quite sit on the shoulders of all the organizations that you're supporting, but you are asking quite a lot from them in exchange for that ongoing financial support, aren't you? You want all of these galleries and theatres to make sure that they are suitably diverse, that they are suitably international, that they are bringing people in through turnstiles and um, and that they're making their best efforts to be commercial as well. So I suppose it's interesting how you're running one organisation, but really you're, you're keeping a, a weather eye on, on hundreds of others. Well, we're working with a huge number of people up and down the country. Um, and you're right, because most of the organisations that we work with are actually charities. So they will have all of the regulations and responsibilities that uh, charitable organisations would have. And, and the cultural sector in this country simply wouldn't be able to, to run in the way it does without all of those people who give up their time and, and put huge efforts into sitting on boards up and down the country. So, you know, chairs of boards, financial leads on boards, they're, they're, they're doing it for for love. They're doing it for something to uh, take their expertise from the business world or, 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 or running other organisations and actually putting it into the cultural sector. So there's a huge army of people who probably don't get enough thanks or recognition, but they're really, really important. And without them, uh, the sector would struggle. So we really rely uh, on them to be working with a very professional cadre of executive leadership in arts organisations. And, you know, I don't subscribe to this idea that, that, that we have weak leadership in the arts or cultural sector. I think there's some, some of the most brilliant and creative and innovative and entrepreneurial individuals you ever meet are running our arts organisations. And, and we need to make sure that we support them as well, because they need to be professionally developed. And if you're sitting as a chief executive in an organisation, sometimes it gets lonely. And so sometimes it's quite important for us to be able to bring people together. And one of the things as a development agency that the Arts Council can do is, is to have a convening role. 
And I think just finally, we, we started off talking about coming out of the pandemic and, and English culture moving on from here, because you do call it culture, I think, as a more broader net than, than the arts, don't you? More inclusive, probably. You did say you were optimistic. I mean, I, I guess you would temper that by saying there is a lot of work to be done. We can get back and there's lots of creativity and positivity to, to look forward to. So we've got to be realistic about the challenges of the journey we're going to go through and some of those unknowns. If we'd been talking 18 months ago, we would simply not have been able to imagine how 2020 and 2021 have panned out. And so it would be foolish to be 100% uh, believing the world won't change and we won't have to do things differently. But I'm very confident in the people that we work with across the arts organisations, the museums, the libraries that we invest in. There's some great people out there. They're, they're really creative. Um, they're very inventive. Whatever life throws at them, they can invent something and create something that copes with that. So that sort of drives my optimism forward. And, you know, we've got a lot of people whose job is about being creative and about being artists and about inventing new things. And one of the things we can do for the Arts Council is to make sure that we, just as, you know, in, in my old days as a radio producer, one of the things I used to say about being a radio producer was to create the environment for the presenter to do their best work. And depending on that presenter, you'd be a different sort of producer. For, for one presenter, it might be about helping them to write their entire script. Uh, for another producer, it might be going and getting uh, their bacon sandwich from the cafe next door because that's what they needed half an hour into their programme every single day. Uh, and for others, it might just be being somebody to bounce ideas off and to make sure that the buttons were pressed in the right order. So so that's what a producer did. And, and I think in a funny sort of way, that's a little bit about what the Arts Council does. It creates an environment for people to be able to do their best work. So going uh, as we look into the, the latter half of 2021, I'm very hopeful. I am optimistic because I think whatever life throws at us, our arts and cultural sector will respond and will respond magnificently. So I'm quietly excited. And still producing. Darren Henley, thanks so much for the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. Please rate and review us if you like what you've heard. For more leaders from the worlds of culture and education like Darren, you can also dive into the leading archive to hear Stuart Murphy from English National Opera, Elizabeth Keish from the Rhodes Trust and the Northern Ballet's Mark Skipper. This episode was supported by Lockton, a global independent insurance broker whose people have the freedom to think and act in the best interests of their clients. For more details, go to lockteninternational.com slash gb slash insight. More podcast episodes coming soon check out leadingpod.com.